started shortly um just so you know this spaces call is a first for mint cash we intend for this spaces to be the first of a series with each spaces focusing on a different topic of interest to the community we'll need your help to figure out what future topics will be so please be patient with us um because mint has a very very small team so our ability to manage twitter discord and telegram is extremely limited um but nevertheless please leave feedback, leave questions, leave topics you'd like us to talk about. Um, we know that many of you are following the progress of the Mint Cash project because of your past negative experiences with Terra. Um, please keep in mind that Mint is not affiliated with Terra, and we apologize if our communications have mistakenly implied otherwise. That said, there's clearly a thread of communication between the code base and the overall vision of Mint and Terra, so we want to answer your questions over time. Terra failed for a variety of reasons. Um, but the project team at Mint really believes that the Terra model can be changed and upgraded to address successfully issues of critical importance to financial freedom and social mobility. To start our Twitter spaces, um, we're going to pull back the curtain on a critical question at the top of many people's uh, DYOR list. Who is the dev? My name is Annie, and I have the pleasure of introducing you to Daniel Hong, the founder of Mint Cash. Hello, hello. Um, my name is Daniel. And I co-founded Midcash with my co-founder and friend Junho. Oh, um, just so you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with public speaking, and I'm not so good at responding to questions on the spot. So, unfortunately, we won't be taking live questions today. Well, as we do this more often, I'm sure you'll get used to it. I just wanted to respond to questions thoughtfully, and I don't think I can do that on the spot. Um, that's also why we haven't opened public channels on Discord or Telegram. I really care about your input, but also our team is really small. We just don't have the capacity to manage um, inbounds because we have so much to do like operation-wise. And more importantly, we have um, just a ton of development work to do. So please be patient with us as we slowly scale our team to get to the point where we can do everything we want to. Um, we are pretty much a work in progress. That's right. We'll work on it. For everyone tuning in, even if we can't take live questions for today, we do want you to leave questions. So again, tag us with questions on Twitter, in the spaces call, and we promise we will get to them with thoughtful responses over the course of Mint Spaces series. Yeah, I do read everything that you post. I'm just um, so extremely busy. We will respond. So what has been taking up more of your time recently? Well, so obviously the team has been working very hard on making sure that the burn drop will proceed smoothly. So building and development takes the most time. Um, Junho specifically has been really a beast. Um, for me, I not only work on products, but I also have been um, fundraising and you know working on setting, setting up some core operations for a company. And how's that going? I mean, it's 
a lot of it is confidential, but I'm lucky that um, people understand the vision of Mincash. Mm. So for people who are listening and haven't yet read the Mincash white paper, can you give them a high level summary of what Mincash is? Yeah, so our mission is adding stability to Bitcoin to unlock cross-border and truly global finance. We will accomplish this by supporting currencies from all around the world. We launched in September 2023 with our white paper, which outlines how Mincash works. And two months later, we announced our burn drop program. And the burn drop program basically will allow you to burn um, failed Terra USD or USD tokens in exchange for our ecosystem tokens. And um, once that happens, our next step is to launch our testnet. It will be a preview of our final product. Um, and our final product will support a basket of world currencies and provide, number one, payments features, and number two, savings accounts with reasonable stable yield, um, which will be denominated in the currency of your choosing. Great. Well, there's a lot of, obviously, economic and development intricacy to Mint Cash's design. Um, Again, as, as we run more spaces, we'll delve more into the details. Today, though, I'd like to keep the focus on the conversation on, on Daniel and unraveling the mystery behind who he is and what work he's done in the past. So, Daniel, I'd like to give the audience a feeling for who you are. Um, for starters, you grew up in Korea, right? Yes, that's right. Cool. So one thing I love to ask people in crypto is you know, how they got into it. When did you first hear about crypto? I mean, that's a really long story. Well, I think we got time. Um, I'm sure everyone would like to hear it. What makes your story complicated or long? Well, so I actually first heard about Bitcoin when it was still a concept. Well, just so the audience knows and has context, Daniel is in his early 20s. So why don't you tell us, uh, like, how is it possible that you learned about Bitcoin? Uh, I, I mean, I, mean I, was, I was really young. How old were you then? I was eight years old. Okay, so that's kind of unbelievable. Were you like some kind of child prodigy? I mean, I don't really like the term um, child prodigy because it comes with a lot of implications and, you know, oversimplifies like a super complicated condition. Okay, so let's let's put it this way. I was um, diagnosed with Asperger's and um, Savant syndrome as a child. Well, um, today these definitions have um, changed, but anyway, I'm autistic. I'm on the spectrum. Ah. Uh. Okay, well, you know, to be honest, I'm I'm not that familiar with autism. Um, kind of familiar with Asperger's, but what kind of syndrome did you say you had? Savant. Okay, well, I don't want to ask you like invasive questions about autism, but uh... <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, yeah, it it is totally okay. I don't have any problems or issues talking about it. So. Asperger's is what they used to call a mild form of autism. And obviously I don't have like speech or intellectual delays as you can, as you can obviously hear, but I do struggle with social interactions and quote unquote fitting in um, as they say. So as for savant syndrome, it's basically um, the child genius condition. I don't think I'm a genius, but I definitely was not a normal kid. I um, actually first heard about Bitcoin because I didn't have friends at all. Oh. Uh, why do you say that? Well, uh, I learned to read when I was 10 months old. <laughs> Are you serious? How is that possible? Like, wouldn't you be in diapers at 10 months old? I, I mean, yeah, I actually do remember diapers a little bit. 
you know, that's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like, I have very traditional Korean parents who, you know, prioritize studying and learning. So they actually taught me English as soon as I started learning to read. So, you know, even though I grew up in Korea, my first language was actually English. Oh, well, no wonder. Well, yeah. So when I started school, I couldn't make any friends. Um, it was really hard to talk to anyone about, you know, what I enjoyed talking about. Mm. In those days, like, what did, I guess, baby Daniel want to talk about? I do remember being like five or six and reading a lot about um, quantum physics. Quantum physics? I mean, so I have some minimal exposure to quantum physics from school, and I probably didn't understand half of it. Uh, but it was not the easiest subject to pick up. Um, yeah, maybe, but I, I was really into it. Like, I really liked, you know, the theory of relativity um, and all Einstein stuff and all that and reading about, you know, um, the whole space-time concept. Mm, I don't mean this in an offensive way, but I can, I can totally understand why mm. it was hard for you to make friends as a kid. <laughs> um, so anyway, like, what did, what did you do about it? Uh, yeah, so around that time, you know, flash games, like you, you play, when, um, th those ones that you play online, they were getting really, really popular, and I, and I saw other kids playing games on computers, and I was really jealous and wanted to try it out too. Unfortunately, I didn't have a computer at home, so you know I basically went to a junkyard and you know built one from parts that I found there. You built a computer using parts from a junkyard? Well, I, I guess you're like reading about the theory of relativity at the time, so. <laughs> Maybe you built a supercomputer. I don't know. Uh, no, no, no. It, it it wasn't a very good computer. It was um an Intel. It was running an Intel eight three zero eight six um from nineteen ninety three, um which is the CPU right before um Intel Pentium. So the computer could only run Windows three point one. Um, I wasn't able to run Flash on that computer for obvious reasons. It, it was too old. Uh, so <laughs> so you built a computer and then you you still couldn't play games. Oh, uh, exactly. <laughs> okay, wow. Yeah, so what happened was that I finished building the computer um, and couldn't play the games I wanted to, but found an x86 programming guide in English at home because my dad, um, you know, used to work in tech. And that's how I first learned to code. I really got into, you know, programming and started visiting online forums. Um, some of my first friends ever were actually made on Reddit. Oh, really? Are you still in touch with those people? Well, yeah, we, we still are friends. Um, all of them are at least like 10 years older than me. Um, I really liked, you know, online forums because I could have discussions with um, people about my favorite topics and, you know, they would be all over the world. Mm, okay, so the story is kind of coming together. So at this point, you're eight years old and I guess you've developed an interest in cryptography and maybe you started going onto forums. Yeah, exactly. So um, when I was getting into cryptography and you know, really like reading and contributing to discussions. Um, and this was back in October 2008. So I was on a cryptography mailing list and um, I was one of around 300 people, I think, who received um, Bitcoin white um, Satoshi Nakamoto's original Bitcoin white paper. Oh, really? That's pretty amazing that one of the third, or the one of the, you said 300 people, right? Was, was eight? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I just thought like, Cryptography as a concept was, you know, really cool. Did you understand the white paper at age eight? I mean, if you're reading about quantum physics, I, I guess so, but did, did it really sink in? It, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, of course, I thought it was um, really cool. 
uh, there were many like technical discussions on the forum um, at the time, and that that particular proposal caught my attention. I did start um, exchange exchanging emails with Satoshi back and forth um, up until the Bitcoin network launched in January of the following year. So that's really interesting. You actually interacted with Satoshi himself. Like, do you, <laughs> I mean, like, do you know who he is? Well, I know it's definitely not Craig Wright. Um, I mean, like, I don't really know. I wish I knew. Uh, well, I guess Satoshi could be a woman too. I mean, people, uh, nobody really knows. <laughs> well, yeah, nobody, nobody really knows. Well, okay. If you received the initial white paper, then I'm guessing you like tried Bitcoin really early. Did you end up mining like a ton of Bitcoin when you were just a kid? Yeah, it is. It is funny that you say that because actually, yes, I did. I, um, you know, did play around with the Bitcoin client and you know discovered it was pretty easy to implement proof of work to mine new Bitcoins. So you know, GPUs for non-gaming uses have just started coming out with frameworks like CUDA and OpenCL just you know starting to merge. Um, I figured out how to build one of the first Bitcoin GPU miners, and I did run my own rig. Wow, I mean that's that's pretty shocking. But I think uh, you know, obviously you're. Like you said, you're not really a normal kid. <laughs> um, I'm curious, how many Bitcoin did you end up mining? I mined over 100K Bitcoins. <laughs> Are you serious? Like that's that's like what, 4 billion US dollars at today's prices, like even more before. Uh, why do you even need to, you know, fundraise for mint cash? Like you could probably fund this yourself several times over. You could fund like everybody in crypto. But, but here, here's the thing. You know what sucks? I lost the keys. You lost the keys? How'd you, how'd you do that? Like, did you just like toss the hard drive or something? Well, I mean, yeah, pretty much. So for me, Bitcoin was really like a technical toy. It, it was something of interest and something of intellectual interest and not really an investment. So I, you know, didn't really think at that time that Bitcoin would be so valuable and, you know, Adoption could be this widespread. Um, I did throw away the computer with the private keys on it, and it didn't really occur to me that those Bitcoin were still there. I didn't even think about it. Um, but obviously, years later, I remembered. So you know, when people say "not your keys, not your coins," um, you know, listen to them. That is that is very true. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I guess you're just eight. Yeah, I mean, I was I was just eight, and you know. Pretty much too stupid to realize I was sitting on the wealth of a, of a country, basically. I did think about it before. I thought about it before. If I hadn't lost my Bitcoins, I could have bought a whole country. That's true. You really could with like $4 billion. That's super crazy. I guess that's one of those things where you just like can't think about it too much or else you'll get really depressed. Um, on the bright side, I guess, given the fixed supply of Bitcoin, then now we know there's like another 100K Bitcoin taken out of circulation. Um, yeah, this kind of reminds me of that guy who bought pizza with Bitcoin, but just worse, like way, way worse. Um, did you stop mining after you lost your 100K Bitcoin? Yeah, so um, there is actually a story to that, too. So maybe there were like two or three of us on Bitcoin Talk who were, you know, running GPU mining rigs. Um, I was one of them. And um, Satoshi found out about our rigs and, you know, basically made a post on Bitcoin Talk. And um, basically what he said was he asked um, all of us to agree to something um, he called the gentleman's agreements to the GPU's arms, arms race, quote unquote. Uh, and so in response to that, I did agree to stop mining when he posted that. 
Well, you know, fair enough. Like with the creator of the thing asked you to stop, then I, I guess you just have to respect it. Uh, and like you said, you kind of viewed it as an experiment. Yeah, it, it was. And I just stopped mining after that. It's, it's really sad. <laughs> yeah, it is sad. But, you know, most people never even know what it's like to have an opportunity to become a billionaire. Um, okay, so now you do have to fundraise, obviously. Um, after mining, did you stick with crypto as your primary interest? Um, by, by, not really. So by the time I stopped mining, I was about 10 years old. I got into um, basically jailbreaking iPhones. Oh, really? Did you have some kind of like huge accomplishment there too? Well, I mean, it, it, I don't know about monumental. Well, well, I mean, like from, from a certain perspective, I guess so. So um, basically, uh, Apple actually um, tried to sue me. Um, like by sending by sending over a lawsuit, um, because like I was you know releasing some open source software for it um, anonymously. Oh really? Apple sued you when you were ten? You were that good? I mean, I, I don't know about good, but um, I, I guess like they sued me, so I guess that mattered for them. But after they learned I was a kid, they actually took back the lawsuit and you know gave me an internship instead. So um, I briefly interned at Apple when I was eleven. Oh, really? I mean, doing an internship when you're that young is really cool. I'm sure that was pretty exciting for you. Yeah, 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 it was. And I also worked um, with Xiaomi for a bit, um, which is uh, one of China's largest smartphone and smart appliance companies. Was that a lot later or right after? No, I, I was I was around 14 um, when I worked there. Wow, that's an impressive resume. Um, at what point did crypto come back into your life? Yeah, so I did come back into contact with Bitcoin again to solve a serious problem I was facing. So back in the early 2010s, we didn't have solutions like, you know, Slack or Zoom. However, there were, was enough infrastructure to do dev work remotely online. And, you know, I was doing contracting work um, on the side for American companies, but, you know, I didn't have a U.S. bank account and my, my payments were too small for international wires either. It just um, wasn't worth it to go in person to a bank branch um, you know, for the sender to do like a swift transfer, um, especially because like wire fees were like a lot higher in these days. And even Western Union um, wasn't a good solution, even though it is basically a private payments like settlements network built for stuff like this. And so, you know, we, we don't really have an option. So guess how people were trying to pay me? Um, I'm guessing they just sent you envelopes of cash. I mean, that that would have been worth something, but unfortunately, no. They actually sent me like domestic U.S. paychecks by international post, like snail mail. <laughs> and you were still in Korea at the time. Right. Yeah, still in Korea. So a lot of these checks, like actually all of them, were not redeemable here in Korea for obvious reasons. Um, and I still have them. Um, I have lots of expired like U.S. bank checks at home still. Um, so, you know, I basically didn't get paid for my work. Um, it was around that time that Bitcoin, you know, started gaining traction and, you know, Bitcoin ATM started appearing. Um, and I did ask the U.S. companies I was working with to send um, Bitcoin instead of checks. Um, and eventually I only started accepting Bitcoin for my work. And, you know, of course, when, you know, Bitcoin's, you know, value and price started becoming more volatile, um, it was no longer usable as a primary payment method. Okay, so I, I can kind of see how Bitcoin re-entered your life. Um, quick aside to the audience, I, I see some comments about uh, things sounding scripted. Um, that's not entirely false. So as, as we mentioned at the top, and I, I don't know if you were maybe on the call at the time, um, 
Daniel's not that familiar with public speaking. So for this first conversation, things will maybe sound a bit more scripted with the goal of over time, as we do these more often, um, we can be more responsive and um, have more live interaction. And for new joiners, um, we aren't taking live questions today for that reason, but um, please do leave questions in the comments. Please do leave questions on Twitter in general, um, because we will get to them in future calls. And uh, we value that a lot. It, it just will take time to get thoughtful responses and, and to be comprehensive about that. But anyways, sorry to interrupt you, Daniel. And no worries. Um, okay, so anyways, what we were saying was, uh, you know, Bitcoin's price was really volatile and then you weren't able to use that as a, as a method of payment anymore. Yeah, I mean, but even, but even so, I was like, you know, so happy to finally even get paid at all. Um, but like the problems I faced with payments these days, back in these days, um, is really the reason why I care so much about Mintcash's mission. Um, I, I don't like that people and their talents are valued based on where they're born. Um, and if, if we can solve for cross-border finance, then we can move to a system where um, people are valued by their merits and not their you know, connections or ability to get a visa. So to you, it's a, it's a very personal mission. It is a very personal mission, extremely. Um, the problems with moving money from country to country is it's, it's so stupid and code can definitely fix that. But um, the crypto also came back into my life in another, in another way. And, and what was that? Well, so right after I left um, Xiaomi, there was a project on Bitcoin called um, Colored Coins. And the leader of Color Coins, um, Jimmy Song, asked a um, Canadian college kid to write their white paper for them. And um, I was immediately intrigued and, um, you know, pinged him a couple of times. Mm, okay, so Colored Coins, Canadian college kid, I'm guessing. Yeah, right. So that Canadian college kid was Vitalik Buren. That white paper became Ethereum and, you know, I ended up contributing some code to Ethereum and the EVM um, early on in 2015. Oh, okay. So that's cool. You were like a contributor in a way to early Bitcoin. You emailed back and forth with Satoshi. And then later on, I guess uh, you contributed directly to Ethereum when it was also very early. So, you know, that's really cool. Like that's a, that's a really great story of how you got into crypto. Yeah. So, um, you know, after, after all this, I did um, start advising a couple of um, emerging crypto projects being built on the platform. Um, the one people might have heard of is Phantom, um, where I worked with Andre Crunch. Um, and the other ones are, are tiny, and I don't think anyone have, have ever heard of them. Um, but one notable thing was I was part of a small team called Everett Protocol um, back in 2019. Um, the project was on Cosmos, and um, we were actually one of the earliest teams to ever introduce and actually invent the concept of liquid staking. Oh, really? Okay. So... Yeah, I mean, that was really early. And I, I suppose, yeah, like you would have been one of the first projects to introduce that concept. So yeah, early to early to everything is kind of the theme for Daniel here. <laughs> well, I mean, unfortunately, the problem was we were, you know, probably too early. So um, like no one really understood what liquid staking was or why it even matters. Um, and investors didn't get it at the time either. So we tried to keep things running um, by bootstrapping and then later, you know, borrowing money from family and friends. Eventually we ran out of money and our team was struggling to pay back um, the, the borrowed money um, we were in debt. And, and you weren't the founder of that project, were you? No, I, I, I was not, not the founder. Although 
Um, the founding team was responsible for pulling me and a couple of others um, into Terraform. Mm, how, how did that happen? Um, what, what do you say they're, you're pulled in? Yeah, so like I mentioned, um, Everett was facing like a funding crunch and um, the team couldn't pay back borrowed money. And around that time, um, Doquan cold emailed our team. And, that's, and that was early 2020. Uh, what was in his cold email? So he basically emailed a proposal to dissolve the Everett entity. And he was going to have the old Everett team um, join Terraform as entrepreneurs in residence um, for, a for a project they were starting. And that project was called Anchor. Um, and in the proposal, the old Everett team would be um, independent of Terraform Labs, but, you know, we'd be paid. And um, Everett's founding team signed the deal. And, you know, suddenly the liquid staking team was working on Inker um, while the rest of the team, you know, went off to other projects. Mm, right. So then you ended up at Anchor. Um, what was your role at Anchor? Yeah, so um, I was one of the three people um, responsible for um, Anchor's smart cor um, core smart contract design and um, financial system architecture. Um, to name a couple of things I was involved with, I worked on um, Biluna, a staking um, derivative of Luna, um, Anchor's um, money market and position liquidations, um, yield redirection to the depositors, um, like stabilizing deposit yield rates, um, DNC token design, um, and uh, Lido's Anchor integration, which is um, like the largest liquid staking token on Ethereum today. Mm, so I, at this point, I, I think probably lister, listeners might want to ask you questions about all the things you worked on. Um, we probably will save that for a future conversation. Um, again, for folks listening in, leave questions, um, leave comments, leave feedback, and we'll we'll try to incorporate, of course, more of Daniel's DeFi knowledge in future conversations. There's there's a lot to dig in there, and he's quite the expert. So I think something that everyone would be curious about is, you know, how much decision making power did you have, and you know, <laughs> were you responsible for the Terra fallout? Um, well, so I need to start with a disclaimer. Um, so the Terraform situation um, is still under active investigation. So, you know, I will be as transparent as I can be. Um, and I worked on Anchor, the savings protocol, which was separate from Terra, the stablecoin. Um, and I didn't design the stablecoin because it was complete long before I even joined um, Terraform Labs. And um, I, I'm still really upset about what happens there. I did help design Anchor in our team's original estimated yield rate um, was around five to eight percent annually, and um, yeah. So, so based on our design, the product was supposed to be reasonable and thoughtful. Well, it definitely wasn't like five to eight percent. I remember it being something like twenty percent. Yeah, I know, but um, you know, so overall, it was it was um, kind of like a really terrible experience. So, um, our team, as like the designers of Anchor, were targeting rates that were fairly reasonable. Um, but however, when our team, core team was basically ignored, um, so basically what happened was two weeks before the anchor launch, um, Doe basically told everyone that the yield rate was going to be 20%. Oh, going to be. So he just decided that 20% was the target and that's it. Yeah. So our, our, our whole team was shocked and everyone said that was impossible on the research team and not just me, but then, um, he said, if you don't make it 20%, you're all fired. Um, and then he left the room. Wow. Well, I mean, he sounds like a, <laughs> he sounds like a horrible boss. So your, your team was threatened with job loss or else. Well, yeah. So obviously something, um, was not right. And, um, there are 
you know, some things that I, I, I'm still not at liberty to say, but I did, did think Anchor was becoming an obvious Ponzi. And um, I left in August 2021 as a result. Mm. Okay, so understood that you can't really talk about everything, but maybe you can tell us what it was like working for Doquan. Well, yeah, so I can probably talk about more things in the future, but, um, you know, as, as like, like I mentioned, there is an active investigation going on, and, you know, I want to respect the government's efforts to deal with the whole situation and deal with Terra. Um, but, yeah, I can um, talk a little about, like, working for Doquan. Um, it was really hard because he was often drinking a lot. He would be, um, like, so hungover that I'll have to call him in the morning um, so he'd get up in time. Ooh, that does not sound good. You had to serve as, a, as his alarm clock? Well, yeah. So um, we had early morning, like, um, cross-chain integration calls with people in New York. Um, and I was concerned that, you know, Doe would oversleep our calls. So I had to, like, call him to make sure he was awake for meetings. Was this a really common thing? I mean, I know Korean drinking culture can be pretty intense anyways. Well, well, I mean, like, Korean drinking culture is is already intense. But um, Doe was... Um, much more intense. Uh, I felt like I was being forced to drink. Um, like, though made everyone drink, actually. Maybe uh, a bit of that was definitely Korean culture, um, but it was mostly Dokwon. He had, like, um, five dedicated fridges. Sorry, he had five dedicated fridges of, of alcohol? Yeah, five fridges for, um, like, crazy expensive, strong alcohol. Um, and that's why Chara's testnets were named after alcohol. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so um, I don't like to drink at all, but um, I was often forced to. Um, and uh, I was, um, and, and like after that, I was up um, really late at night vomiting frequently. Oh, wow. I mean, obviously a lot of people enjoy a bit of drinking culture, but if you don't like to and are forced to, that's really bad, especially if you're vomiting. That's super abnormal. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, uh, so... You know, Doquan being drunk was a big problem. Um, he would sometimes drive the team around while drunk. Wait, really? He would drive while drunk? Yeah, it, it was it was um, terrifying. I, I remember being in the passenger seat um, of his Maserati when um, Doquan said something like, yo, brace yourselves. I haven't driven in a while. Prepare to die. Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a vivid image. Well, um, he would do things like that all the time. And, you know, he thought saying this was funny, but... Um, he was drunk and, you know, accelerating very quickly and ran, like, I think, five traffic signals. Um, and, like, yeah, that day I thought I was going to die. You didn't get out of the car when you saw he was drunk? Well, I mean, like, I'm I'm pretty socially awkward. So um, I, I did mention my concerns around, like, public speaking before and, you know, how I can struggle socially. Um, so I, you know, really had a hard time reacting on the spot. Mm, okay. You know, that that's fair. I guess even someone who doesn't struggle socially in some ways um it would be pretty shocking and you wouldn't know how to react so yeah again sorry you went through that um yeah you you almost brushed with death that night that's super dangerous and illegal obviously but you did mention you you left in 2021 yeah august of 2021 right august so um i'm sure you were very relieved when you left terraform uh, you must have had such an overall bad work experience it sounds like there yeah, it was quite bad. Um, actually, I didn't get paid according to the terms of the proposal. Um, those signs, actually, not even signs. Um, um, whatever it. Uh, you didn't p- get paid. Yeah, and um, I mean, I mean, like, I got paid a salary. 
um, but like not not tokens or anything else. Like it was just a base salary. Um, and yeah, like that's also one of the reasons why I care so much about making you know payments easier. Um, there has have been so many times in life where you know I should have been compensated for my time um, and and my efforts and talent, and um, for various reasons was not. Mm, so, so that was the straw that broke the camel's back. You left, and then you started working on a bit, right? Not yet, not yet. So, um, I was still really concerned about you know um, Terra and Anchor, and was um, posting governance proposals to um, you know help some users, but none of them passed. Uh, later, I worked on another project and um, consulted under my um, own company called Peter Pan Crunch. Well, that's an unusual name. Uh, why did you call it Peter Pan Crunch? Well, yeah, so actually it's um, it's a reference to being bullied. So for a long time, um, people gave me a hard time about like being childish or, you know, young looking. Um, in particular, one guy started nicknaming me Peter Pan because, um, you know, Peter Pan never grows up in the story. And um, it was it was an insult and it kind of bothered me. Um, but like later I thought about it and and was like, um, screw this. And, and I took the name in pride. Um, just, took the name in stride so you know i want i wanted to own it instead and you know crunch is kind of like well you know crunch like 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 to crush it oh okay that's the reason yeah uh yeah that's the reason and um while consulting um though i I kept encountering like payment problems again so i i grew frustrated with this like with with this you know continuing problem and um the you know you know, inequities of, of labor and value. So in early 2023, I started um, a firm called LF Research um, with Junho, um, who I had met while working on Pylon. So um, just, just as a reminder, Pylon was another thing that, you know, unfortunately was hindered by it all. Oh, I, I don't, maybe you should tell everyone a bit more about Pylon. Like it probably doesn't sound as familiar. Yeah, so um, Pylon Protocol was um, an old um, project incubated by Terraform Labs. Um, that was um, Terra's flagship token launchpad product. So on, on Pylon, you could invent, invest in you know, new projects being built on Terra by staking UST and you know, um, funding the project with anchor yield instead of directly paying um, UST. So um, Juno and I both worked on the project. Um, and uh, Doquan came up with the high-level concept, but you know, wasn't willing to devote the time or dev resources to the project. So we had to time, find people to work on this um, for free on a part-time basis uh, in exchange for future token grants. And um, you know, one of my super talented friends um, from New York uh, worked, one, worked on Pylon for a bit um, and uh, has basically pulled in Juno as a as a replacement. Um, and you know, my, my, my friend ended, ended up quitting because he you know, couldn't take the abuse any longer. Um, so actually it wasn't, it, it was just me who didn't really get paid. Um, like Juno didn't really get paid either. Mm. You know, from the outside looking in at the time, I would have thought that at Terra's peak, the whole project team was, you know, like popping champagne and living a luxurious life. But it sounds like pay was a real issue for everyone, at least for you and Junho, right? Uh, and then obviously the the whole ecosystem collapsed later. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really painful to see and the, the whole situation. So um, we together kind of. Um, bonded in misery, and uh, that that's what led to our bootstrapping um, LF research for the entire year of 2023. Well, as we've mentioned, uh, you keep getting underpaid, 
and you obviously lost the keys to 100k Bitcoin, so that's significant. Bootstrapping must have been pretty hard. I mean, you guys must have been working out of a closet. Yeah, I mean, like, you're probably joking, but uh, it was actually worse than a closet. Um, so we never had our own space until very recently. Um, we slept on couches and uh, shared a single WeWork all-access card. So just to clarify, you said just one card? Yeah, like, we were um, trying to reduce um, spend as much as possible. Um, but another reason was, um, like, Juno wasn't allowed to work out of WeWorks. He's not? Well, yeah, he, he's too young. Like, their policy uh, is to only allow people in over 21. Mm. I didn't realize Junho was that young as well. You barely make the cutoff too, actually. Yeah, um, but I mean, we were working on like a super complex project, um, like building a wallet that uh, didn't require private keys and, you know, onboarding regulated stablecoins through um, integrated bank accounts. Um, that was what we were working on. Um, but like investors couldn't really understand it. And uh, our project was too technical. It was um, a little bit too complicated um, for those without like a deep background in cryptography. And uh, after like really eight months of building, um, we had like kind of like the aha moment. So in um, August of 2023, I was um, you know, walking with Juno and Seoul um, when I said, yo, I, I know this sounds crazy, but uh, like, why don't we rebuild Terra, but do it right this time with, with Bitcoin. Um, and that's how Mintcash started. Mm, okay, so that's how your journey brought you to Mintcash. Yeah, and, and once I said it, it was um, incredibly obvious. So um, Terra had this initial goal of rebuilding the financial fabric um, to disrupt payments with a fully functional Forex swap module to support you know, any currency. But um, it was the wrong leader and the wrong degree of discipline um, and ended in disaster for the huge Terra communities. And um, it, it felt right because we both worked at um, Terraform before, even though Fortuno was um, part-time and was briefly. And we wished things had gone differently um, because the product itself was um, trying to do something important. We wanted to fix it. So um, we spent two months um, working on designing some core mechanisms um, in the white paper. Uh, we, we don't really have the time today to talk about it, but um, two things we paid special attention to were um, the supply demand problem with um, like on stable coins and monetary contraction. Yeah, you know, we're probably pushing up against time at this point, but we should add this to the list of things to talk about in future spaces for sure. So um, we're, we're definitely going to do more spaces, as we've mentioned before. And um, this initial conversation is obviously more about Daniel and his background, which is quite interesting. Um, but further in the future, um, I think the calls will be more technical and will be much more um, mint cash focused in terms of, um, you know, like what development looks like, what milestones may look like, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. 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 So like that, that sounds, that sounds great, but, you know, basically, you know, going back, going back to, you know, stable coins um, the short story is that, you know, we introduce modified Keynesian central bank monetary theories on back onto the blockchain. Um, like like taxation and interest rates, um, and then you know combine them with um, proof of stake mechanics built on the Cosmos SDK. Um, you know I've been looking at this for over a decade, and we believe we can do this um, better than our predecessors. And you know again, um, we we really feel compelled compelled to right some wrongs for the old Terra community who um, genuinely believe in a fully decentralized yet um, scalable stablecoin. It's true. I mean, Terra wouldn't have gained the traction and support it did if the concept was complete nonsense. 
Um, well, thanks for sharing, you know, the more personal aspect of your story with us today. Um, even though you're in your early 20s, you actually interacted with some of the most important and controversial people in crypto, right? I mean, you emailed back and forth with Satoshi, you contributed to early Ethereum. Um, I'm going to tell all my friends that I now know a guy who lost 100k Bitcoin. That's crazy. Um, and I, I think in the future, yeah, I'm sure you'll tell us more about, you know, Terraform when you're able to. And yeah, all this started because, as you mentioned, you couldn't make friends as a kid. Yeah, um, I mean, at, at least I'm glad I have friends now. <laughs> that's true. Um, before I let you go, I think I need to ask you a question that's on the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, when do you expect Burndrop to launch? Yeah, right. So, well, so I do want to let everyone listening in to, you know, know that our team is extremely talented. Um, and has been working very hard on launch preparation, but um, you probably didn't know that we only have like under 10 people in total. So I know we've been a bit slower than anticipated. Um, we are sorry for the delays, but we are really committed to delivering quality work. Um, like it's, it's a really small team for a vision this big. And I think we mentioned this earlier too. We can't be as active on Discord, Twitter, um, Telegram, um, as we want to be because like we just don't have the resources right now. Um, everyone is just focused on like building the product and you know launching um, product launches. Um, so you know based on on what I'm seeing you know with our with our progress right now, um, we are targeting a launch date in mid to late February. So um, coming up really soon. Um, you know we will release more information once we are um, fully ready. Um, so we didn't want to say too much about the burn drop and disappoint everyone, but it, it is coming very soon. Um, and I, I'm really proud of our team. And, you know, as the project grows traction, um, we will, you know, of course, need to grow our forces. That sounds really exciting. So we have a burn drop to look forward to in mid to late February. Um, thank you, Daniel, for your time. I'm sure everyone appreciates, appreciates uh, your transparency and open communication. And this is a great start to what will be a ton of spaces. Um, this wraps the first Mint Cash spaces. Thanks again, Daniel. Um, I'll let you get back to work. You have a burn drop to drop. Um, to everyone listening in today, I hope you feel like you got to know Daniel a bit better. Uh, we can't let the spaces go on for too long, so we'll end our chat here today. Um, if anything about Daniel's origin story caught your attention, please tweet at Mint Cash. Like we mentioned at the top, this conversation is the start to a series of spaces, so we would want your questions. Uh, we want um, you to tell us what kind of topics you want us to talk about. Next time we run the spaces, we'll dig more into the mechanics of the Mint Cash project. So again, leave us questions so we can prepare thoughtful answers for you. Um, thanks so much for joining, and we will see you all next time. Nice. I'm gonna tell you something. When the world starts to get really bad, and these mugs out here robbing, you gonna love digital currency. All these motherfuckers, they be running and gunning, and I'm all like, I'm sitting back just having fun in the sun, and then I'm like one out of a hundred, I'm just building up on it. So some of everything we built are in the last hundred upsets, you're getting salty, feeling faulty, you ain't no man. I keep robo here, grinning ear to ear, throwing up anarchy, smoking toilet trees, spitting philosophies. Look at the dossier, we rack like geology, there's layers to this shit, like it's sedimentary, all these little onion peels getting torn off. And buried, imagine the smell That shit is a vital experience Without knowing how you will not survive, period uh, <laughs> He's a fucking trip, man Jimmy, if you Jimmy, if you listen to this, right You're getting absolutely fucking ripped to death Like on a spaces of a life You little troglodyte bastard I hope you fucking listen I hope you come to my house, son I swear to God, man I 
Fuck a fucking load of weapons and my dogs, man. Mate, you just a little laugh, man. Go on. Fuck off, man. Do one. Fuck off. Harmony. Me and the other one. Do you looking for a fucking job? You fucking idiot. You've just been fucking up with this. Fuck off. Try to change the course of the portion philosophy I'm just here for the corporation sponsored lobotomy Feels like I won the lottery Like I'm ghosting this pottery Chill, Demi Boy, the shit's supposed to be haunting If it wasn't, ain't no puzzle You would try to train your muscle Air dropping like a fatal hustle But the pay is buzzing Think of all the loss of crew Just to pick up on the truth Because I'm not figured All those sub downs would make up for something I guess it just goes to show The fuck do I know? At least it's quiet over here I like my little silo It's better than watching them fight over How to divide my time between Sitting at the desk and the ride home Devs at Mickey D's, they leeching off that Wi-Fi Zapdos and Mole, they shipping more than five guys Console open, waiting for the kamikaze When the flash phone bang, they feeling like paparazzi Snapshot motherfuckers We got layers, meteora jawbreaker We cracking a lot of craters We wrapping a lot of pay dirt Maxing out relayers Imagine the smell, five dollar wrench to your Darth Vader It's, it's really funny uh, to us at Binance That everyone here is talking about uh, blockchain attack. We know who all the validators we are. We know where they live. And we're going to their house. We're going to give a wrench. A big wrench. And we will attack them with the wrench. And then we will take their validator node physically and put it in a truck and drive it to China. Right, so this is an extension of the, the activities you performed on, on BTC, right? Uh, funding and creating these massive uh, Bitcoin mines, putting them in caves, putting them in, in uh, factories that were abandoned in the past, and also using electromagnetic pulse bombs to detonate uh, the USA and the other country mines, right? So you're now applying this strategy to, to Lunk uh, in order to take over the chain, is that correct? Uh, it's more simple. There's no uh, EMP bomb. It's just a van of men in uh, Balaclava, and they have wrench, and they're taking the physical validators from people's houses. They are usually very fat and they're usually uh, in the shower with, you know, with trying to wash uh, their mice uh, droppings off their uh, clothes. So it's very simple. We just walk in and we take it. But if there is someone who is sitting at the computer or sleeping at the computer, we, uh, we hit them with the wrench really, really hard. And then they say, stop, don't do that again. And we say, that's okay. Just give us your validator note, and then they give it to us, and we drive it to China. Ten spaces.